Good morning. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open them to the book of Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, as we go through the Bible, and we find many, many things that we probably would have missed. But you know when you go line upon line and precept upon precept, as Isaiah says, to teach God's Word, you learn a lot of things and it brings God's Word into balance. And I think today in our world today, this is so important because... Anything becomes believable when you take it out of context. Somebody said to me one time, well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And I said, that's absolutely true, unless you take it in context. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, expository teaching, I believe, is so important in the world we live in today, or really, honestly, any time, because it gives us that balance that comes from God's Word. Following the service today, we got some donuts, coffee across the hall for you. You're all invited to stay and meet some new friends. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word today, we just ask you now that your Holy Spirit would come in a special way. Lord, for every listener in this room across America, around the world on the internet, Lord, we just ask you now that your Holy Spirit would come and teach us from your word. And Lord, that we know that since you began it all, it's all under your control, God. This world is not out of control, spinning crazy, but Lord, that you have everything under control. Always help us to remember that, Lord, the days ahead when things get crazy, God, that we know that we can trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we find in the Bible is that God put man and and woman in a beautiful place, the Garden of Eden. And because they sinned against God, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. And then progressively, as man became in rebellion to God, more and more of the judgments of God came, further adding, you might say, more, uh, more of an adverse uh, atmosphere, more uh, hard way to live, all these different things. And so... The last verse of uh, chapter 8, verse 22, you might want to look at this. This is the first, uh, first mention of winter in the Bible. As most of you know, I am not a big fan of winter. I'm not a big fan of snow skiing. I can think of a thousand better ways to break my neck than on a cold hill in the dead of winter. But the point is, is this. What we find here in verse 22 is that this is the first mention of seasons that we find uh, mentioned. Before that time, it appears that there was no violent atmospheric changes that would contribute to what we call hurricanes, tornadoes, violent winters, snow caps, all these different things. The Bible says the earth was watered by a heavy mist every morning, kind of a heavy dew that would come, and this is what watered the earth. Some people believe actually it may very well be possible that at that time before the flood, it did not have a 23 and a half degree axis uh, offset, that it was straight up and down and circled the sun. And so therefore the climate would always been the same. And also the earth was covered with basically a vapor canopy, like a greenhouse, not the greenhouse effect that we find in all the ecological issues today. But we're talking about, we were just kind of surrounded by a big, kind of a Hawaiian island kind of atmospheric kind of thing. Temperatures didn't change too much. It's interesting in Hawaii, a couple places over there that I know of, in fact, most of the Hawaiian islands, um, 
The daytime high is 82, the overnight low is 72. And it's kind of fun to watch the weather on TV there because I can't imagine anything more boring than being a weatherman in Hawaii. 82, 72, 82, 72, 82, 72, all the way across the line. Well, yeah, occasionally they do get a storm. But what I'm saying is the idea, it was like a vapor canopy around the earth. And so things were much different. The way things grew was much different. So when Noah came out of the ark, we find a completely different environment. Let's read verse 22, and then we'll go to chapter 9. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. So as long as the earth is here, this is what is going to be that which governs it till God makes a brand new heavens, brand new earth. Now notice a couple of things. One thing, cold and heat, not mentioned before the flood. Now we find it mentioned. And also winter and summer also mentioned, was not mentioned before. It was kind of an even temperate thing that we find. So God blessed Noah, his sons, and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is the same thing that God said to Adam and Eve. And essentially, because of Noah and his immediate family, God was starting over again with them. So the command was the same to Adam and Eve, basically, as it was to Noah and his family. And fear uh, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, all that moves on the earth and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Now, it's interesting here because before the flood, it appears that people were vegetarians. After the flood, they were. And it may be very well because of the shortage of food, the, the, the world was going to be different, all these different things. But God gave the animals a kudo and said, hey, the fear of, of man will be in you. Now, it appears that before the flood, that animals weren't scared of humankind. You know, it's interesting, the Bible talks about this millennial reign of Jesus Christ, that somewhere seven years from today, because we have a seven-year tribulation period, but the Bible talks about how the fear of man is going to be taken away from the animals again. And where the, the you know, the, it gives all these different prophecies, how, and oftentimes people say, and the lion will lay down with the lamb. Well, there's no verse that says that, never was. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, wolf will lie down with the lamb or whatever. But the point is, is simply this, the fear of, of uh, animals towards man will be gone. And so it's going to be a different world, uh, again, when God changes that. Verse 3, it says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and I have given you all things, even uh, the green herbs. And so just as it was with Adam and Eve, they were told they could eat of the fruit and the trees and all those different things. Now we find this addition here uh, that it's okay to not be a vegetarian. So that's life, that is its blood. So he says very clearly, you need to drain the blood out of the animal before you eat it. Now, it says, for surely, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. And from the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, and from the hand of every man his brother, I will require the life of a man. Now, what it's talking about here is that God starts instituting some laws here. And one of the things that he institutes is that Life is in the blood, is what he's saying here. 
In fact, if you do an overview of, of blood in the Bible, uh, you know, we even sing the song, it's your blood that cleanses me. Blood was made for covenants between God and the nation of Israel. The blood covenant was made between what Jesus did on the cross and what, what he's done for us. So we find all the way through the Bible, you're going to find blood, a very important part of, of that which we approach God in. Uh, and so the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, why is that? I, I believe this is how grievous sin is to God. Uh, sin uh, requires a, a, a life sacrifice for it. Now, what's really weird here is that there's a lot of wisdom in God's word. I mean, it's the book of wisdom. And it says, surely your life blood. Very clearly here, just in this word, it indicates that life is in the blood. How many people here know how George Washington died? He died because of what was called barbers. No, I'm not talking about the ones that hippies hated in the 60s. I am talking about those, they were called barbers, and what they would do is when you got sick, they would come and drain blood out of you. Because they believed that in that blood, there was the nastiness and to get rid of as much of it as you could. And so therefore, the blood letters would come. George Washington was out riding on his horse and he got cold and went in and, and um, took on a chill and he got sick and his throat started swelling up and all these kinds of things. So about two or three in the morning, they called for the barbers to come and start draining blood out of him. They estimate, according to the notes that one of the generals that was by George Washington's side, they drained. How many people know what a two-liter bottle of pop looks like? Okay, pretty good size, right? Here he is, 30 um, weeks after his retirement, 30 months after his retirement, um, he gets a cold. The blood letters come in. That's what he had was a cold. The blood letters come in and drain two liter bottles, two of them, out of him. Well, he died. I mean, you, you can't live without blood in you. And so what's really amazing here, the Bible says life is in the blood, and yet kooky ideas made people think, well, if you got rid of blood, you would get rid of the bad juju that was in you, whatever it was. Killed him. So we look at this and realize that life is in the blood. And he goes on, he says, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, not, excuse me, and by man, his blood shall be shed. So life for life. This is where capital punishment came from. Uh, and uh, by the way, not all killing. The Bible says thou shalt not uh, kill. The real word in the Hebrew is the word thou shalt not murder. Now, murder uh, takes on the idea of a premeditated hatred. Where thou shalt not kill, we realize that there are many uh, instances through the Bible, and again, right here where it was instituted. If you kill somebody, it required your life to do that as well. But again, not all killing is murder. And we certainly understand the importance of armies and military and in living in a fallen world and all these different kinds of things. So that's something to always remember. People have oftentimes misquoted the Ten Commandments. Well, thou shalt not kill, and I don't, I'm a conscientious objector. Many of us remember that. 
whole ordeal. And, and, but that's not what it's talking about. It's saying premeditated murder. You want to get even with somebody, that's uh, what it's actually outlining and talking about. Whoever sheds a man's blood, uh, by that his blood shall be shed. So understanding God is starting to institute laws, dietary laws here. We also find now also the uh, laws concerning civil relationships. You kill somebody, you get killed. It's interesting, by the way, in the political realm, I'm always amazed by this. Most of the people today who are against the death penalty, even though God's the one that instituted most of the people who are against the death penalty, interestingly enough, are for abortion. Isn't it weird? Something to think about. For, again, it says he's in the image of God and he made man. And as for you, be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds of the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all of you go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall shall all flesh be cut off before the waters of the flood, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I think God saw the absolute horrific damage of this. And I think that God knew what it was going to look like, but I think he wanted to convey to man because I think when Noah, that door opened on the ark and he walked out of the ark and he went, whoa, this is a whole different world than the one that we went in when we closed the door a year or so beforehand. And so he says, this will be the sign, the covenant which I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I will set my rainbow in the cloud and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. And it will be when I bring the cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which I made between me and you and every living creature on the flesh on the earth, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, by the way, that's important, all flesh there. The reason why, it doesn't mean there's not going to be localized floods. We all, we all recognize that. But there'll never be a, a, a global catastrophe like this ever again is what God says. And he says, I'm going to put the rainbow in the sky. And I think it's always important, moms and dads, grandpas, grandmas, when you see uh, a rainbow in the sky, you explain to your kids why that rainbow's there. Well, God put that there as a promise that he was never going to destroy the earth again with water. Now, interestingly enough, Peter tells us that the second time God destroys this earth, it's not going to be with water, it's going to be with fire. In fact, the Bible says the earth will melt with a fervent heat. All things will be destroyed and God will make all things brand new. Now, here's why that's important. By nature, and and really this is something that they don't really understand, like charges repel. I've shared this many times, but it's still one of those anomalies that I don't quite get. You take two magnets, North Pole and South Pole, and you try to put the two North Poles together and they repel each other. They push against each other. You flip one magnet over, the North and the South, it sticks right to it. The nucleus of an atom is like 
molecules that are same, um, same charge, positive or negative, whatever it might be on the nucleus of the atom, they're, they're positively charged. And by nature, they should repel one another, but they don't. And this is one of the things that they don't, they call it sometimes atomic glue. They have a different names for it, but they should not stay together as the nuclei are swinging around the core of the atom, all these things. And depending on what that core is comprised of, depends on whether it's wood, carpet, whatever it might be. Everything you see, the Bible says, was created from nothing. Energy is basically invisible. And yet that's what comprises the the center of the atom, which everything is comprised of. So out of nothing, the Bible said he made everything. And yet by nature, everything should repel with one another. I think what Peter's talking about here is a complete global nuclear fusion where God just simply allows the atom to do by nature what it would normally do. And that means to repel one another, you'd have a a, um, uh, just an absolute chain reaction to nuclear energy and the whole earth just melts down. Well, that's what the Bible talks about. And by the way, that's probably why uh, the lake of fire is not in the center of the earth. You know, we know that uh, people all the way through the Bible, when they die, they go down. I don't know where down is. I don't know where, where there's a big compartment down there or however it works. Jesus spoke of it concerning the rich man and Lazarus. They went to this place. It says the rich man uh, was buried. The angels came and got Lazarus. And by the way, when it comes time to go, I'd much rather be escorted than thrown into a hole. But anyway, that's just another thought. But the thing is, the Bible says that uh, both of them are now in this place, this place uh, of the dead called Sheol, divided into two compartments, the paradise side, the torment side. The rich man finds himself in the torment side, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom on the comfort side. Now, again, Jesus had not died for the sins of mankind. The blood of bulls and goats, as we just spoke of, important in the sacrifice and all these things, could never take away man's sin. It could cover it, but it couldn't take it away. And so therefore, without the supreme sacrifice, mankind who has died because they didn't have the full forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, could only go that far. That's why the Bible says he preached to those in captivity those three days when he went into the heart of the earth. He didn't go preach in hell. He preached in Sheol. Hell was, or Sheol was divided again into two compartments, paradise side and the burning hell side, okay? So understanding that. But here's what's important. When the earth melts with a fervent heat, again, the second judgment of God on the earth, the Bible tells us that it's not annihilation. And the lake of fire that we find mentioned in Revelation, the last couple of chapters there, is a place not in the center of the earth. And otherwise, somebody would say, well, if it's in the center of the earth, the earth melts with a fervent heat, then it's annihilation. So really, it doesn't matter how bad you were. If you miss heaven, hey, you're just not going to be anything. You're just going to be a puff of smoke, and that's all over. That's not what the Bible teaches. The book of Jude says that the examples of Sodom and Gomorrah remain forever as an example, experiencing the eternity of eternal fire. Uh, that's in the book of J, uh, Jude. So understanding that uh, this place of eternal punishment 
is not in the center of the earth. It is a, it is a reserved place in which God will do uh, for the people who have rejected him someday. That's why I believe, again, we want to do everything we can do to share the gospel with people because either one of two things. One, you may not be here tomorrow. Jesus could come and take us or God might call you home before he calls us. Well, that circle of influence that you have with your friends, you may not have tomorrow because you might not be here. But what's even more scary is they may not be here. You might still be here, but one of the greatest things you'll ever, sorrows you'll experience in your life is to say, gee, I wish I would have shared Jesus with that person before they died, and I didn't. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we want to be very careful to take every day very serious. So God puts a rainbow in heaven, in the heavens, to show man that he won't destroy the earth again with fire. I think it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, that God puts a mark on the 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel, lists every tribe by name, 12,000 from every tribe. He puts a mark on their forehead. You say, Mike, what's that got? Because when we get to chapter 13, the Antichrist puts a counterfeit mark on their heads. You say, well, what's that got to do with anything? It's interesting that God took the rainbow and made it a promise between him and us that God would never destroy the earth again with a flood. It's a, it's a great sermon illustration. It's interesting to me today that the gay community has picked up the rainbow as their symbol. Isn't that weird? To pervert that promise that God made between man and humans about destroying the earth, and yet that is their symbol. I always believe that the devil is the absolute counterfeiter and the absolute one that wants to degradate anything that has to do with God. And again, the real mark, chapter 7, Revelation, on the 144,000 Jews out preaching his word, the devil comes along in chapter 13 and puts the counterfeit mark on the people of the earth that are serving him. Well, he says, I remember my covenant, which is between me and you, every living creature, all flesh, the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And again, you might want to circle the word all flesh because there's people today that say, <clears throat> well, look, look at the flood. The, the Missouri River overflowed its banks and look at the flood. And God said he'd never destroy the earth again with a flood. And look, God lied. Well, it says all flesh. Read the word. You're going to find a, a real clarification here. It's talking about a global flood. And by the way, we talked about that, that it was a global flood. It wasn't a localized flood. The Bible says that the water went two and a half feet above the top of the highest mountain and stayed there. Now, water seeks its own level, so it's impossible that this would be a localized flood. And over 200 cultures in the world, not just Jewish, not just Christian, but 200 cultures uh, around the world make mention of a global flood. And so it's not some obscure thing. In the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every creature that on flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant which I will have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we have that. We have a promise from God and that's where the rainbow came from. Now, the sons of Noah went out of the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father 
of Canaan. Now, this is a weird thing here, and, and it takes a little bit of, of careful reading. We have here the son of Ham mentioned. Now, we know he wasn't the firstborn. He was probably the lastborn, or, or at least probably somewhere along the line, at least the fourth down the line because of the, the begats that we find oftentimes in the Bible. And we're going to find out why in just a second. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole world was populated. I always remember that saying, I don't know him from Adam. Well, actually, you probably don't know him from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. You want to be accurate there as well. And so it says, it says that they were the three from which we're all descended from. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. By the way, after the flood, he went back to what he was doing before. I think it's always important that um, we're not idle. If God uses us to do one thing and that particular calling on our life is done, uh, then I think we always need to look and say, okay, God, what's next? What do you want me to do next? Notice it said he made a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and got drunk. And he became uncovered in his tent. Now, to me, friends, I don't know, but I think this is a weird thing in the Bible here. You know, uh, you're reading along rainbows and floods and all this, and Noah got drunk. Does that seem weird to you at all a little bit? Noah got drunk. Okay. Now, there's some thoughts on this. I'll share them with you. I'll leave you. It's up to you to determine what you like. Some people believe that before the flood, the rate of decay was much different. This could contribute to the inaccurate. I just think it's interesting. Because the world was different then. They didn't have winter. They didn't have cold. They didn't have all these things that now we have. And so before the flood, it was a different environment. Some people believe the rate of decay was much slower. I tend to agree with this for this reason. God told Noah to build an ark. We talked about this before. It took him over 100 years to build the ark. Now, I don't know about any of you, but if I'm working on something, the, one of the worst things is, is to have one end of it rot out before you get the other end done. And so to work on something for 100 years without Thompson water seal or something else going on, I don't know how the whole boat didn't rot out before he got it done. So it would, to me, seem that there might have been a different rate of decay before the flood than after the flood. Again, and I think this is why the carbon-14 dating uh, can be skewed. We do know, and this is really weird, talked about this before, but the nose holes on the dinosaurs uh, are much too small for an animal that big to exist today based upon our oxygen, nitrogen uh, content in our atmosphere. They believe that even the content of the, 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 uh, the gases before the flood were different, which very well could be. I don't know. I'm just throwing these out there for you. So it may very well be possible that Noah stored the grape juice like he always did, but uh, since the rate of decay now is different, and everybody knows that what makes alcohol alcohol is, de- is decay. Uh, that's why they put yeast in, uh, you know, the starter and these different things, even in bread. It was Louis Pasteur, if you remember, looked at uh, yeast under a microscope and determined that it was bacteria 
And as it deteriorates, it gives off the gas and causes the bread to rise. It's not a wonder to me that God said, don't have yeast in your bread. It's the, the feast of unleavened bread. Remember the, the Passover? Because we now know that yeast is bacteria. There's no bacteria in Jesus who is the bread of life. That's the thought. So he says, he drank wine and got drunk. Maybe the little thing's fibulating the lung and all of a sudden now he drinks it and gets drunk in his tent. Now notice verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, this is really kind of interesting here because it doesn't come across in the English the way it really comes across in the Hebrew. That this was total mockery of what's going on. Now, I, I, I think it's, it, there's a lot of wisdom here. And, and if we can get this, you're going to find yourself perhaps a lot better off in life. When you see somebody else's shortcomings or a mistake that they have done, the Bible says when you see a breaking and a fault, you put it on the internet. No. It says love conceals a matter. Not to deceive, but not to embarrass. Do you get the difference? How many people here have done something stupid this week? My, well, my hands are up. I seem, I, I'm, I'm getting, you know, one thing I found as you get older, you get really good at it, don't you? Anyway, but the idea in the Bible is that when we see somebody overtaken in a fault, we don't go, hey, everybody, bozo over here. The idea is love conceals a matter. In fact, the Bible says six things the Lord hates us, seven are abomination unto him. And one of them is those that love to spread rumors. And those that sow discord among the brethren. That's what God hates. So the point is, is this. When somebody is maybe not hitting on all cylinders, the idea is not to bring attention to that. I know that there's a lot of internet blogs that seem their whole existence for existing is to do the very thing that God cursed Cain and Ham over. I stay away from those kinds of things because those things are the very thing that God will judge. And I don't want to be in God's judgment. I want to be in God's blessing and you do too. And what is the things that God curses and what is the things that God blesses? Now, friends, this is wisdom. And you can say, well, I don't care about it. I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay, you can do that. But don't be surprised when it turns around and bites you and takes most of your life away. Case in point, let's look. He gets drunk. Ham comes in, finds his father naked, and tells his two brothers outside. Now, it's, <laughs> you see him in there, he's drunk. Now, by the way, it talks about this. Let's just read a little bit more here. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid, laid it on both their father's shoulders, went backwards, 
covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So they saw their, Ham is bragging about how dad's drunk in there. Ha, 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 what a loser. I don't, it, it comes across that way in the Hebrew. And in fact, it actually implies there might've been some sexual bad things going on. And it may not just been Ham alone. It may involve Canaan as well, as we'll read on, we'll see. This may have been something a lot more because of the wording in the Hebrew. Anyway, but when the other two brothers heard about it, they didn't go, wow, that's cool, I want to look. They, they just hung their heads, they got a blanket, they went in backwards so they wouldn't see their father's nakedness and covered him over. The point is here is we're going to read, God blessed the two brothers for that, and he cursed the one that was making fun of him. Don't be under God's curse. How do you get under God's curse? Exploiting somebody else. God doesn't like that. You know why? Because he's the judge. I'm not the judge. I don't know what that person went through in their life to end up in the way they were. And my condition, my, my position is not to go and, and try to psychedelicize why they're that way. Mine is to try to make things better for them. That's what you would want somebody to do for you, wouldn't you? If you did something wrong, wouldn't you want somebody to come and help you get out of the absolute train wreck mess you're in? Rather than going, hey, everybody, train wreck over here. The old sin nature of man does this. Now, why, does, why do we do this? Why are we like this? Because we feel better about ourselves when we see the demise of someone else. Understand that? In other words, I'm not doing so bad. Look at this clown. I'm doing good. I'm not like him. Yay, me. Dangerous. Because I'm not the standard. And again, this is one of the great problems I have with psychology and self-help and motivational speaking oftentimes in the church is that it doesn't matter what you think about you. It's what God thinks about you. And this is one of the great things that you hear. You can do it. Well, the problem is, even if you can do it, it doesn't mean it's right. See, we live in a society today that says the end justifies the mean. It doesn't matter how you get it done, just get it done. And if you've got to lie, cheat, steal, do whatever, whatever you've got to do, just get it done. No, that is not God's way. And the reason why people like to exemplify somebody else's shortcomings is so they feel better about themselves. And by the way, if that's the only way that you think you're a Christian is you're not doing what everybody else is, you're, you're not saved. Pretty bold statement, ain't it? I didn't say it, God did. The Bible says if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us and we make him a liar. Why is that? Because we are not justified by what I think of me or that I'm better than the other clowns around me. You and me are justified because of what Jesus Christ did for us. That's what makes the difference. See, that's where, where is your source of cleansing come from? Is it that I'm better than these people or is it because God made me holy? 
If God made me holy, now I can turn and minister to other people. But as long as I'm trying to justify myself that I'm better than these other people, how in the world then can I honestly, in faith and in honesty, minister to those people? See, because their failure is what's making me me. I'm good because you're a goofball. So if here's the deal. So if I can, if how can I minister to people that I feel are making me better because I really don't want them to get better because if they get better, they could be better than me and that's not good. That's what's wrong with the old sin nature. We see it here exemplified. Sham and Japheth took the garment, laid it on their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away that they did not see their father's nakedness. I think, you know, I think it's a good thing sometimes that we govern what we look at. (laughs) I do. Have you ever seen those things that you just go, oh, I wish I would have never seen that? Um, I think there's there's wisdom in that. I, I think we need to be careful of what we allow ourselves to look at. It's not that I look at it and I go, yeah, but the thing is, you have flashbacks of that. And I think we kind of need to be careful what we allow our kids to see as well, because I think that can flash back and affect them as well. Verse 24, interestingly, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Evidently, he might have been drunk, but he wasn't completely out of it. They say that um, 50% of, according to the FBI, 50% of all rapes involve alcohol. Isn't that weird? 75% for men, 55% of women have have had in, in, in some way alcohol involved in a compromised situation. Isn't that weird? Um it's, it, it, you, you look and realize that, uh, as it says in Proverbs, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and those that are deceived by it are not wise. Um, you never have to worry ever about being an alcoholic if you ever, never start drinking. I don't drink. I've never drank. I don't want to drink. I got drunk once in, a, in, a, uh, in my cousin's wedding. I didn't know what it was. I, you know, you're, I've never shared this before. So. so we go to my cousin's wedding. And my, my, I saw my, cousin, my other cousins pouring whiskey into the punch bowl. And I thought, now that's something you don't see every day. And so anyway, I started drinking. And, and uh, so, never being drunk before, I decided to drive home. I turned the corner in my van and fell out of the seat. I reached my hand over and I was pushing on the brake pedal so the car didn't just go down the road. I'm a terrible drunk, friends. I'm pushing on the brake pedal so I didn't go down and park cars. And I reached up and turned the key off, and I was all whirly. And I remember distinctly saying, Jesus, don't come back now. It was really weird. I realized that I was not functioning right, but I said, God, please don't come back right now. I don't know which way is up. I had the whirlies. I was in bad shape. And I said, you know, God, 
I don't know why people think this is fun. I'm never going to do it again. And I never did. The point is, is this. If you never drink, you'll never be an alcoholic. If you don't get around people who are drinking, you won't be tempted to drink. If you don't get around people who are doing drugs, your temptation of doing drugs is going to be greatly reduced. You're known by the company you keep. So be wise with where you go. Be aware of where you're at. I think it's so important. Noah awoke. He might have been out of it, but he wasn't completely out of it. He knew what his son had done to him and maybe his, his, uh, his grandson. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants, and he shall be to his brethren. He's going to be a, he's going to be a servant to his brothers. Uh, blessed is the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and may dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Boy, I'll tell you something. He told everybody, he said, your, your brother's going to serve you guys because of what he's done. Notice verse 28, it says, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So he lived... Uh, he lived uh, 20 years longer than Abraham, or excuse me, Adam did, and uh, just a little bit short of what Methuselah did. And um, by the way, interesting, um, God, uh, God used Noah in a very great and mighty way. This morning, you know, as we look at this, I think sometimes... Sermons aren't necessarily always directed to a non-saved person. I, I think sometimes, and I pray that all of us grow in the Lord and, and understand these things. But, um, you know, it, it's really, really tough sometimes without the correction of the Holy Spirit in our lives to not get to the point where we kind of go, yeah, <laughs> that guy had it coming. Truth of the matter is, friends, we all had it coming. There, by the grace of God, go I. And God was merciful to you and me that we didn't get what we deserved. I think back, that van of mine could have rolled down the street, ran over a kid on a bicycle, and I'd been in jail for the rest of my life. I think about sometimes those near misses that we go, wow, pure luck. No, that was God's hand in your life. It was those things that God does in our life to protect us. First of all, if you're not a Christian, I feel bad for you. You have no one watching over you. No one. No one. You know, I got my friends. Yeah, you got your friends as long as you got money and a car. But when you lose all that stuff, we'll see who your friends are. In fact, the Bible says you will never know who your friends are until adversity comes into your life. There's an old saying goes, a friend walks in when everybody else walks out. But even that will never take care of you or protect you. You, you need God. You need God to, to, to watch over you and protect you and give you his wisdom so that you won't find yourself going, I'm better than that guy. Well, as long as I have that attitude, I can never help that guy. 
So where does my goodness got to come from? Is it coming from me being better than everybody else? Or does it come from God? And if it comes from God, I realize my righteousness is not self-generated. It's a gift. And because it's a gift, I can give to others. I can give to others. Not looking at what they've done wrong in life, but because I love them. See, that's, that's the difference. This morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit challenged you through his word. And that, that we understand how important it is that there were people in Christ who love, that we reach out to those and, and whatever we can do to make their life a little better. You know, the Bible says even a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, God sees and says, I'll reward that on judgment day. You see, to be a giver instead of a taker. Before you're a Christian, you're a taker. Oh, you might be the most charitable person in the world. You might be one of the greatest humanitarians in the world. But you're still taking because you're trying to build yourself up and you're taking, trying to identify and make you who you are. You can't do that. Only God gives you your identity. And when God gives your identity, it cannot be challenged by others around you. This morning, I pray that if you're not a Christian, you accept Christ today. I pray, number two, that if you are a Christian, you realize why we're still here to be a blessing to others. And those other people around us are never meant to justify you because of their failures. Those people around you are so you can minister to them in spite of the condition they're in. You see, that's what God does. Greater love hath no man, Jesus said, than he lay his life down for a friend. This morning I pray that you understand that great love that God has for you. And if you're not a Christian, we're going to pray right now. Maybe you're distant from God. And God just says, hey, I I want you to come home to me today. You pray this too. And God will do as you ask. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I invite you into my life. May all good things that come from you be poured on me. And Lord, may I in turn pour them on others around me. I'm sorry for the silly way I've lived. And from this day forward, I commit my life into your hands. I believe Jesus' blood was shed for me. And it's now cleansed me. And so now, may I be about your business for the rest of my life. And thank you for eternal life with you in heaven someday. In Jesus' name, amen.